mean, no food actually has a gender, right? Like the idea that like the foods we think of as feminine or as masculine, right? Like they come to us through culture Um, and food media is part of that, right? The messages that get repeated, whether it's in food reviews or feature articles or in things like advertising Um, and, you know, everything from like the packaging design, right? To who stars in the commercials, the topography they use, right? All these elements are a part of sort of constructing gender and food is this really important part of it. Um, But, right, if you're going to break it down to the example right that's so basic and so obvious right this idea that like salads are feminine right these placid empty water-filled vegetables (laughs) that come from the earth and then the idea that like steak right red meat right is this archetypal masculine food and in most cultures right around the world that that holds in such powerful ways Welcome to another episode of Amuse Bouche, a podcast of big ideas in small bites. I'm your host, Kehlani Palmasano, and this week I'm chatting about the roles gender and power play in the world of food with none other than Emily Contois. But before we dig in, I want to thank everyone who has been listening to Amuse Bouche and welcome to the new folks that actually started binging the show in the past couple of weeks. I saw you all in the stats listening from beginning to end. Well, not like saw who you were exactly. I just saw the stats and I was very pleasantly surprised. So thank you. Thank you so much. And I just want to ask if you like what you're hearing, please take a moment to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It helps other passionate foodies find amuse-bouche. So thank you so much for that. I really do appreciate it. Okay, back to the show. Emily is an interdisciplinary researcher and teacher working at the intersection of media studies, food studies, gender studies, and American studies. Her work also engages with the history of medicine, critical nutrition studies, and fat studies. She completed her PhD in American studies at Brown University and has three master's degrees. Her recently published book, Diners, Dudes, and Diets, How Gender and Power Collide in Food, Media, and Culture, explores the rise of the dude and how diet culture and marketing companies actually changed their messaging to target the dude demographic. It's one of those books that makes you realize that you really can't see the full picture of something until you actually step out of the frame and look inward. It's Truly an interesting read for anyone, even if you're not in food media like myself and like Emily. So, Emily, how did you find yourself at the crossroads of food, gender, and media? So it started way back when I was a student in undergrad. I was really interested in understanding diet culture and how it affected women, in part because I, you know, had to recover from an eating disorder when I was in college. And that was a rough journey, right, to go through. But I sort of say it helped to sort of intellectualize it. I could learn so much about my society, about my culture, about the media environment in which I lived, so I could see where some of those messages came from. And so, you know, the truly disordered eating that I I was living with, we see that, right? In our everyday culture, those messages come to us from so many different places. But I think what's been interesting about this journey of like continuing to focus on food, and I got interested in men, you know, focused on masculinity, was that I wasn't a feminist in the beginning, right? Like I never would have used that word to describe myself when I was younger. And so even though I had this interest in gender, it was later, right? As a master's student with the PhD too, that I was interested in power, 
right? How does gender create hierarchy, access, privilege, right? Those are the big questions that I'm interested in now. Was this like a slow realization or did you have a big aha moment? I think so. My story is so weird. And then I had this like amazing, like liberal arts, interdisciplinary, all this fun stuff in undergrad. But I was like terrified that I wasn't going to make the world a better place if I didn't like do something, right? Besides just like write pretty words. And so I went to public health school. And so while that was really useful and I learned so much in the five years I worked in worksite wellness, I had to sort of put these ideas down for a long time and really focus my work in a different way. And so when I got to return to it, It was. It was getting to dive back into these ideas that were familiar, but realizing there was so much left to learn and do and grow. I think one of the jokes is, right, like you, you know, you finish your undergrad and you think you're so smart, right? Like, oh my gosh, to be 22 and think you know everything, right? That is this (laughs) pinnacle of youth. And then you get a master's degree and you're like, ah, there are other things. And then you get a PhD and you're like, I know nothing. No one knows anything, right? This is all socially constructed. Um, And so sometimes, you know, the more you know, the more questions there are, right? more projects, the more ways into it. So it's aha moment after aha moment. I think that's what makes um, academic life so fun and so interesting. It's 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 really interesting how much this book touches on and how revealing it is and how it's really a product of our generation. The concept of the dude that you bring up in your book, you mentioned that this archetype is a product of the Great Recession. Now, was this a trend that was percolating a little bit before the Great Recession, or did this demographic really emerge and blossom from this economic period? Yeah. So the dude as like a gender type, um, which I kind of describe, right? Like the dude is the slacker, right? He's this hero that we celebrate because of the ways he's totally not the hegemonically conventionally masculine man, right? With like six pack abs and a great job, right? Like I remember when I was in college, a guy friend saying, right, you know, women wanted like six, 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 right? Like six pack, six feet, six figures, right? Like these are the sorts of like destructive things, right? That like men have to live up to in the same way, right? That these gender conventions really constrain women too. Um, And so this idea of the dude, right, as a way to opt out of all all of that, right? A way for men to move through the world more comfortably at the same time that they don't give up any of that privilege, right? Like it doesn't make the world better. More right. More He's for kind women. of, yeah, it's kind of like uh, the pinnacle of mediocrity, but also yes. kind of um, like, like a not doesn't care about like there's also like the chapter on like a like diet culture too where it's like he doesn't necessarily care about diet or he's not supposed to look like he cares but this is it's a kind of a backwards way of like kind of caring about it yeah, exactly. That the dude is able to like maintain all of his like masculine authority because of that distance, that insincerity, that coolness that comes oh, with the, the dude. aloof. Aloof was like the yeah. word that I was kind of thinking of. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you, if you're not invested, right, then you can't sort of be hurt by all of this. You can't be disappointed or be a disappointment. Ooh. And so that was real during the recession. Right to be able um, to come out and get a job after college, to be able to buy a house, to be able to have this you know illustrative climbing career, right? Those goals were really impossible, right, for lots of millennial men. And so I say that the dude, you know, it resonates with different age groups, right? But it really right tells a story um, about that moment. But I do think I talk about not just the Great Recession, which economists right want to point to like an eighteen month period, right, two thousand seven to nine. I talk about the Great Recession era. 
this much longer period of time in which our culture was affected yes. by that economic fallout. That's true. That's true. And uh, what coincides with this is the rise, the fall and rise again of Guy Fieri, which I remember he got to Food Network through that Food Network star show where they were looking for who was going to be the next Food Network star. And he was this character that just like rolled in, was a part of, was a contestant on that show. And is it right that he had something else before it was Diners, Drive-Ins and Dives, right? He did. I think like Guy Off the Hook is the show oh. that he gets to make, right? Like that's yeah. when he wins from being a part of that he, reality like show. You said it right there, gets to make. He like got to to make that show. Um, but you kind of talk about, you know, how he he's like an interesting person. And there's been a lot of like discussion ar- around like, is he good or bad for food media? <laughs> um, which I guess people can just kind of make for themselves. There's good and, and bad. But like he's this kind of guy that like, yeah, he's um, he shows up to these kind of regular old like the drive-ins the dives and just smashes a lot of food in his face and says things like off the flippity flop or like (laughs) his famous flavor town um but people really really love it (laughs) and it really resonates with them what are what are your thoughts so that's why I always joke I could have written a whole book just about him. That chapter was so much fun to write. It was so big that like other articles had to be torn out of it and you know put other places. But that last section might be my favorite that you're referring to of like the fall, referring to Pete Wells, right? Reviewing yeah. you know Guy Fieri's kitchen and bar in New York City and just tearing it apart. Um, and then the rise, right, of coming back that he was you know so fully recuperated yeah. um, in part by like features in men's magazines which is interesting to think about that intersection, but also just this sincere fan base um, that truly loves his sort of populist, you know, feelings about food, the way he presents himself, the kinds of restaurants that he's promoting. Right. Um, and then I was also like really fascinated by like the anti-fans, right? Like I'm not convinced that a lot of people who like, you know, go to the bar crawls, you know, to celebrate, you know, Fieri oh, Day. Oh, there was, um, was Fieri Con where people dress yes. up as Guy Fieri and go to like all these bars. Now, as part of your, as part of your research, did you get to go to FieriCon? I wish. I thought about going to the one in New York because it was in Providence, you know, like I wouldn't have been that far, uh, but ended up not going. But it's been really interesting to see those proliferate, right? Like it sort of started as this kind of joke, right, of some young guy in New York. And now there have been ones, you know, sort of all over the country. Right. And so I'm interested in that sort of, you know, why would you want to dress up, right? And also sort of make fun in a way. So scholars have this idea of like anti-fandom, right? Which is like the pleasure you get from like hate watching, right? Like this is oh, how yes. I feel about Michael movies, right? Let's watch them just so we can scream at the screen. Um, That like, there is this really interesting pleasure in watching him, like, regardless of whether you're a fan, an anti-fan or something more ambivalent in between. But I am really interested in like the politics of Guy Fieri too, um, that, you know, everyone is so enamored of the fact, right, that he's just this good dude, right? We've heard that so much, whether it was about him cooking during the California wildfires, right. he worked with the National Restaurant Association. Yeah, he does like COVID. a lot of um, volunteering and a, he he donates yeah. a lot of time and money too. Yeah. Exactly. So he'll do stuff like that, but he's not Jose Andres, right? Is this sort of comparison I draw in the right. book. He's not going to actually lobby Congress yes. right, to pass the legislation, right? That only just passed for the restaurant recovery right. um, of really supporting this industry. So I'm really interested in 
in the apoliticalness of the dude as a gender discourse. And then this really unique way that Guy Fieri really animates that, even as he is this good dude, right? Maybe it is all real and wonderful. And that's why people, you know, from every political stripe, every state in the union, right? Like really appreciate and he love him. He could really make a powerful stance. If he made a political stance, it would be a, it would send ripples through the industry. Exactly. So I wrote this op-ed that never got published, you know, right after the inauguration oh. when we got that Bernie Sanders meme, right? Oh, that yes. guy also does, right? And yes. you know, posted on all of his social media with, you know, not me, us, which was Bernie's campaign slogan. So this whole idea of like, are you actually supporting, right? This socially democratic, socialist democratic, right? Sort of, um, you know, campaign platform of like yeah. what that means. And so the idea that there were people like on the left, right, who really wanted to embrace race Guy Fieri for that when like it's still not something right like right. there's this desire for him to be this more politicized and political active figure but that's just not who Guy Fieri is at least not yet at least exactly at least not yet and I'm sure and, and you know he's evolved over time and I'm sure you've watched a lot of his episodes like you can kind of see at the beginning he's really focusing on you know like big burgers, like bit like fried, greasy things. But then as time goes on, his uh, the net almost opens. Like he widens his scope and then he starts going to like, you know, restaurants run by immigrant families and he's learning how to make rice noodles. Like I watched an episode recently where he was like, I've had rice noodles, but I had no idea what process like went into it. And so you get to see this appreciation of other cuisines that I, that are definitely part of the American foodscape. Uh, he's starting to like feature them on his, on his shows. And so, you know, uh, what type of, did you notice that evolution over over the years? Because it's been a long time. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, like I watched hundreds of episodes, and oh, there yeah. I was like, what thirty seasons? Maybe even more. Like, like it's like maybe one of the longest running, you know, shows. Right. Um, and so that was one of the pieces that I spun off into this article, like thinking about how does diners, drive-ins, and dives construct an idea of what America is mm. and what American food is, which is this really polemic question, right? right. That even you know, food scholars like have many different perspectives, right, of how we would answer that question. I love assigning that in my classes, right, with, you know, inviting students to know there are many different ways, right, that you can posit this. But one of the things he does, right, is I argue that a part of his America and his American cuisine is this complex multiculturalism mm. that he does, right, sort of endorse this like melting pot kind of metaphor and right. telling those immigrant stories in ways that I think are respectful um, and, you know, do bring in these other voices. But his program still doesn't get us outside of that food travelogue show with the white, straight, you know, able-bodied white guy, right, who goes out and discovers and explores and explains and brings it back. Right. So he doesn't get outside of those sort of imperial colonial logics, if you'll call them, right, of like how that genre of food TV actually functions. Um, you know, like salt, fat, acid, heat, right? Does that so much oh, better? She, yeah, right? like yeah. I my mind was like blown when she hosted the show because it was for the first time I got to see like this 
inner, like this, uh, you know, a woman who has an immigrant background, who was allowed to be smart on television and who could travel. But she did this fantastic uh, job of being able to step back yes. and let another person talk about their food. And so she was really good at giving the platform uh, to you know, that person to like own their cuisine and really talk about the the nuances and everything. There's also a chapter in uh, Diners, Dudes and Diets about diet culture and the language that's used to market dieting to men. I think the one that stood out to me was like Weight Watchers, where it was like, lose like a guy who hates like, <laughs> who hates losing. And I'm like, that's such a weird, or the words of like, um, the yogurt that was like powerful or the, um, the, the sodas that are now uh, zero, you know, uh, what was, tell us a little bit more about like grammar or like not grammar, but vocabulary choice and trying to communicate this diet culture. Yeah. So I'll start with the first one of this concept of zero, right? Which is so I analyze Coke zero, um, but you see it as like a concept applied in a lot of these advertisements. Yeah. So instead of, you know, diet, right? Like diet Coke for women, right? That's about lack, right? That's about what isn't here, right? There are no calories here. There are no, there's no fat here, right? That um, women are sort of indoctrinated into this idea that you're supposed to be pursuing a lack of appetite, right? For food, for sex, for ambition, right? That is a pursuit of lack. So for men, we can't market that, right? That goes against all these masculine norms, against sort of a patriarchal system. So for men, we have zero, which is undiet diet, right? This is diet that is full and empowered and is going to market what it contains, right? So like a yogurt for women, right? No calories, no fat, artificial sweeteners, right? Like, no, 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 no. Well, for men, right? It's like, if this has protein, right? This has these, you know, great clean ingredients, right? It's emphasizing what it has. So I've actually seen that applied for women as well with like the shift to wellness culture, which I call, yeah. right? Like diet culture, supposedly harmless cousin, but Ugh. we know it isn't, right? Yes. So many problems with wellness as well. And so for men, there is this like winking, right? That like you're not going on a diet, right? We're using this totally different coded language. But what was so interesting with Weight Watchers was to compare side by side how they advertised their program oh, features yes. to women versus to men. Yeah. And so for men, it is. It's just like, you're just going to eat dude food, right? And you're not going to restrain. You're not going to restrict. You're not going to be hungry. You're not going to eat salads. You're just going to be a man, right? You're just going to do whatever you want. But you're also going to track what you eat and the weight's just going to fall off. Yeah. So for men, it's so different, right? This expectation of sort of discipline and restraint. But then like the way that that cuts, right? You know, the idea that like patriarchy also constrains men, right? Makes it hard for men to be themselves. Yeah. That there is no promise of like transformation, Right. I think that promise for women can be really destructive, right? The idea that if you lose weight, you're gonna be a better mom, a better wife, right? Like the real you is inside of you, just waiting to get out, right? Like I hate that, right? Oh, that is yeah. such a garbage message. But at the same time, for men, there is no promise at all. Right? You're just this immutable, stable, masculine self that isn't allowed to admit vulnerability, that isn't allowed to acknowledge the self, that isn't allowed to hurt, that isn't allowed to struggle. Right? You just have to triumph. So I try to read that with like as much generosity as I can for how patriarchy is also really bad for men. Oh, yeah. Um, 
Yeah. But to never forget, right, that it's also way worse it's for women. Way worse for, yeah, women yeah. There's a lot of like language in diet world about I'll be happier like when I lose 20 pounds or like how, oh, I'll get a bathing suit when I lose 20 pounds or go on a vacation. Like there's some kind of treat at the end of this or like somehow a better life at the end of this like journey of restriction and ca- the stress of counting calories is it like that in men diet culture? Like, is there an end game or is it just about overcoming and triumphing and winning? Yeah, it's much more exactly like that. And then for a long time, what we saw is sort of the promotion of fitness, right? Like building muscle, working out, right? Like that isn't viewed as sort of feminine. Um, So I think this chapter, right, is the last one because it culminates this argument I'm making about this concept um, called gender contamination. Yes. Right? That if something is viewed as feminine, men aren't going to want to buy it or be a part of it. And so like going on a diet, right? Like it's feminized food, feminized appetites, feminine ideas about your body. Um, and, you know, like everything about it was feminized. So looking at how, you know, marketing messages tried to combat that, right, really shows us how these industries have a lot of power in how they define what in the world it means, right, mm-hmm. to be a man or a woman. And so I argue you can see so clearly, right, this idea of like there's only a binary option, right? Like it puts us in boxes in ways that do true harm to people. That's true. That's true. It's very, that can be very restricting. And, you know, Mm -hmm. on the other side of the diet culture is, you touched on it a little bit, like the dude food, which is stuff that you're kind of like working on now, this idea of like the chicken wings, the burgers, the like, what is, what is this manly, manly food? Like I, I am an eater. I love to eat. Uh, I would go on first dates and order a full rack of ribs, not a half a rack of ribs, a full (laughs) rack of ribs. And in a way, it was like me testing the person because I'm like, this is the way that I eat. This is the food that I like. Um, And you can either handle it uh, or... You know, there were two responses until I got my husband's response, and that's why he's my husband. The one response was I never got a call back because they were just like repulsed at this woman who eats like a man. And then like a man, like, no, I eat like a human. I'm just eating the things that mm-hmm. I like. <laughs> uh, but then there was like a, a, a second response, which was I they almost over romanticized me. Like mm-hmm. I somehow became this like manic pixie dream girl because I was eating a whole rack of ribs. <laughs> yeah. So there's actually like this whole other discord, right? That is like the cool girl. Yeah. Right? The oh. idea that you have to be sort of conventionally beautiful, right? You have to tick all those boxes. Mm-hmm. But then this idea that you will, right? Like oh, yeah. eat all the food and swear, right? And you know, do you're all these sorts of things. A cool girl because you're one of the guys. You're doing mm-hmm. guy things, you're liking the sports, you're eating the the the, you know, the the Super Bowl food, as yep. we'll get into, uh, you're eating all this. But like the moment you have a moment of vulnerability or a moment where you are in any shape or form that reminds them that you're a girl or woman, um, then it's like they just shut down completely. And I have been the tomboy who would like need some girl girlfriend time or like need to like vent or need to, I don't know, be expressive, be, be vulnerable and just watch as like my male friends just like, 
you know, just fall apart because they can't handle it. But, uh, you know, the third response to the rack of ribs situation was like my husband who was completely unfazed. And I remember appreciating that so much because I was like, wow, I am neither a manic pixie dream girl to you, uh, nor am I, nor are you repulsed by me. So I, I knew that he was the one. Um, but yeah kind of going into now this idea of um of like masculine food um and how it like why is it considered masculine um and how in a recent article that you did for uh, nbc how it has become weirdly politicized yeah so i mean no food actually has a gender Right. Like the idea that like the foods we think of as feminine or as masculine, right? Like they come to us through culture Um, and food media is part of that, right? The messages that get repeated, whether it's in food reviews or feature articles or in things like advertising Um, and, you know, everything from like the packaging design, right? To who stars in the commercials, the topography they use, right? All these elements are part of sort of constructing gender and food is this really important part of it. Um, But, right, if you're going to break it down to the example right? That's so basic and so obvious, right? It's this idea that like salads are feminine, right? These placid, empty, water-filled vegetables right. <laughs> that come from the earth. And then the idea that like steak, right? Red meat, right? Is this archetypal masculine yes. food and in most cultures, right? Around the world that that holds in such powerful ways. And so we are in this really interesting moment, right? Where like the rubber's hitting the road or whatever that phrase is, right? About climate crisis, right? Like right. having these conversations about how institutions, corporations, governments, and individual people, right? How we all have to start thinking differently about how we're going to make sure our planet lasts Absolutely. and that we get to have a comfortable, happy life on it. And so individual changes in diet, right, are not the main ingredient in that change. But thinking about eating less meat, particularly red meat, right, is one of these things that's recommended. Mm -hmm. And so it has been so fascinating to see how that's become deeply politicized, right? right? Um, That particularly among conservative folks, right, that is just a, a real red button, you know, hot button issue that people really get upset about. This idea that someone would tell you um, or order you, right, to eat less meat, that that constrains your idea of like how to be an American, how to be a middle class or, you know, aspiring person. Um, And these ideas particularly, right, about being a man, right, um, being able to eat what and how you want. Oh, yeah. It's wild how a recommendation can get like conflated to a uh, government mandate and people are just like, Biden's coming for your beef. But (laughs) that's not necessarily what is uh, what is happening. It's just merely a recommendation due to a climate concern, but also, too, about a, you know, how our commercial farm, like the commercial farming of animals, just bad for the environment. But then there's also the concern of like, you know, that's how a lot of these kind of pandemics begin of just like how these zootropic uh, diseases jump from animal to to human. It's usually in these like tight quarter, you know, spaces where it's not the healthiest environment for the animal, not the healthiest environment for the person. Um, So, I mean, there is definitely, I like, 
I eat meat, but I would not mind eating. Like I actually do eat less meat. I don't think I eat like a ridiculous, like when I think I was reading your article and like someone had said, um, they're going to limit your burgers to one a month. And I'm like, who's eating a burger a month? <laughs> um, that's, you know, impressive. Hey, power to you. If you're eating like a burger a month, that's the, whom I'm not, ju- I'm not judging, but I just feel like, you know, there's at this point, other things, other things to eat. Um, (laughs) But yeah, like, do you like, how did beef become so patriotic? Because I feel like we're rewatching King of the Hill. And he's (laughs) very much about his propane and propane accessories. He's very much about steak, beef, he's always grilling and everything. Like, how did that become so patriotic? Yeah, so two moments that I really like thinking about. Hasia Diner wrote this incredible history of immigration mm-hmm. and thinking about food. Um, and so when she looks at you know these big waves of Italians coming to the United States at the end of you know the 19th century, the early 20th century, the ability to be able to eat meat and eat it pretty regularly, like that totally changes, right? What Italian American cuisine is, this is true, and yeah. this idea of what it means to be an American, yes. right? To be able to eat meat. Often, right? And, you know, nutritionists will talk about nutrition transition around the world. um, That as, you know, countries have, you know, greater income and people are able to, you know, have more robust diets, more meat is one of those changes that you see, right? Meat is intensive to produce, it costs more. So it does, it stands in for these ideas of like class standing, right? You've made it. So it is tied in as we think about these histories of immigration. Right. Um, But then with masculinity and grilling, all those sorts of things, like there is this moment in the post war, right? After World War II, um, where this idea of the suburbs, um, that there's this really um, very binary and very invested moment of like, what is masculinity and femininity? And the grill as this patio daddio kind of framework, like the 50s and 60s is where that really takes root in pop culture, in food culture. We see lots of cookbooks, you know, that represent those images. I think even the great exhibit for food history of the Smithsonian, like it's about grilling. Wow. And so as we think about that as the space, right, where men can be um, in the domestic sphere and still be masculine, that's their contribution sometimes, right, to a family's sort of culinary habits that, you know, the grill is viewed as this sort of masculine space. And so thinking about the moments, right, we've connected that to what we eat at the 4th of July, right? We've connected it to, you know, what we eat and who cooks it for these different patriotic moments. That's But true, I think this yeah. American idea, right, of abundance, of freedom of choice, right, these values that are deeply meaningful, but that we are seeing politicized in really problematic ways now, yeah. like they are, they're uniquely tied to this idea of what it means to be an American. American in a way that sometimes you can turn turn a blind eye to some of the histories, right, that made that possible. Yeah. And I think those are the difficult conversations we're having now. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, you had also talked about how there were some vegan presidential uh candidates. And Cory Booker was one. And I live in New Jersey. And I had no... Oh my God, yeah, tell me. (laughs) I had no idea that he was vegan, nor did it like, nor does it personally matter to me. Like, I'm just like, yeah, you do you. Um, Enjoy you know, your, your vegan, your vegan lifestyle. That's totally cool. And also too, maybe, you know, as a political 
you know, if he had gone all the way to the presidency, it would have been interesting to see like a presidential menu that was vegan. Um, it would have been kind of interesting to see, but I, I didn't realize that there were whole movements of people out there who were like, I'm not going to vote for this vegan president, no vegan president of mine. And I'm like, oh, wow, I didn't, I didn't realize that, um, people were that adamant about, uh, like beef to the point where it was like, like a deciding factor for, I mean, maybe it wasn't a deciding factor. It sounds like there might've been other stuff going on, but as a person, like as me, as a, like a woman in food media, where did food media go wrong? And like, what are some things that we could do to um, better communicate what's been going on with how we frame food? Yeah, I think part of it is diversifying the industry, mm-hmm. right? That when we look at, you know, who is the food critic for the newspaper, right? Who gets to write the stories? Who's the editor assigning the stories? Um, you know, who's behind the camera, right? That we have a huge problem, right? Of not having enough diverse folks, right? Women, people of color, um, queer folks, right? Being able to tell their own stories, right. right? And to be able to have an editor understand, right? The stories that you're telling. Like I've heard all those horror stories, right? Like, oh, we've already published, you know, one story this month on Indian cuisine, right? Like we don't need anything else ever from an Indian author, right? Like we hear that sort of thing. And so like the the more, you know, we truly have people in positions of power, authority, decision-making where they're making equal pay, right? As the white men in their industry, that we can really have that change, you know, trickle down. Um, I think the thing I say with my students is that representation matters. It matters deeply, but so does, you know, in a very Marxian sense, right? like access to the means of production, yes, right? When you can really change what's being produced, whose stories get told, how they get told, how they get distributed, how they get attention, right? Like that's when you can really change an industry, change a cultural sector. And so I think food media, you know, had a reckoning just like all other cultural industries and sectors um, as we thought about, you know, particularly race in this country. But I think we have to always think intersectionally, right? To think about gender, to think about sexuality, to think about class to think about citizenship status. And so that's a lot to take on, but being able to truly bring those changes, like that's how this industry gets better, more just, more equitable. You talked about food critics and who's allowed to critique food. And the idea of a food critic has always like weirded me out. And and especially because I got into food through travel and I really loathed the way that uh like the rum diaries who was that guy that wrote the rum at the gonzo journalist oh my goodness it's like his, oh hunter s thompson yeah yeah, yeah. yeah his name <laughs> slipped my mind like the way that he was allowed to be a travel writer and like hemingway and he like hemingway is like a whole other probably masculine thesis that could yeah, be explored sure. and probably has been explored already um <laughs> but it, you know i came into food through travel and as a travel editor travel food editor, I get a lot of guys who come at me with gonzo style, like, uh, drank my way through Puerto Rico or like something like that. And I'm just like, I don't need to hear this. Uh, Nobody wants your travel log, your musings. No, I'm not interested. But, you know, in the food world, that kind of uh, <laughs> I hate to say it, but Hunter S. Tom, Tom, uh, Thompson uh, and Hemingway kind of style of writing is kind of like the food critic world. Uh, and, and I never understood how or why like the 
the arbiter of good food was like white, old white dudes. I don't trust you to tell me what a good hand pulled like noodles are. Like, I don't trust you to tell me where the best Thai food is in the city. It's just going to be through your lens and through your, you know, through your experience. And yeah, just because you eat a lot of Thai food doesn't mean that you're like an expert in it. But um, I am appreciating seeing, you know, more women and people of color critics popping up at like large newspapers across the nation. But with that being said, there's also this like removal of like the ratings. So like the almost like the what critique, what restaurant critiquing is, is kind of evolving and changing. Um, And I've always thought like because I'm the host of Check, Please in Philadelphia, our version of it. So for PBS and it's a restaurant review show where average diners are the reviewers. But I'm like, yeah, it's reviewing. But think of it as setting up people's expectations. Tell them what the restaurant looks like. Is there a feature dish? What's your favorite drink to get there? Um, You are. the you know the people recommending these restaurants so really like play it up tell us why you like it and everything but yeah um what are your thoughts on the evolving of the food restaurant critic role in america yeah i love that point about the power differential right like the food critic right who sits on the hill and gives the stars and you know i mean that's why ratatouille was so wonderful right as a film (laughs) ego right in his coffin just like laying down these horrible reviews um and so like there's that and then this idea right of like the public right having opinions having knowledge having perspectives right and caring um so like that's why yelp right was supposed to be this like more democratic space to sort of bring in right people's perspectives Perspectives. But then there's been really interesting scholarship, right? Looking at how, you know, mostly white folks on Yelp, right? Having these ideas about what counts as authentic, right? Which are quite white supremacists, right? right? So it doesn't not replicate some of these problems. Um, and so I think that's one issue. The other thing that I know lots of other people have said is the difference between being a PR mouthpiece oh, yes. and actually being a food journalist, right. right? In that food critic role. And so that was also interesting during COVID, right? Where like, Critics couldn't go out and review restaurants. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. But like they had to actually like work a different beat or serve the food news beat in a different way. Right. And so I think food critics, right, are often, right, their palates are fantastic. Their knowledge of food is so deep. And then often, right, their prose is so beautiful. Oh, yeah. Right. Like I love teaching that section of my food media course for students to just like find sentences to highlight and like put up on their bulletin boards, right? And just like emulate, right, this beautiful writing. Yeah. yeah. But at the same time, like I think that's why Soleil Ho means so much, right, of this change of not only getting rid of the stars, not only writing from a totally different positionality, but to also have the food review be a place where we can talk about colonialism, be a place where we can talk about, right, these big, complex topics. And I mean, she's spoken about the the, um, pushback right, that she gets from readers. And so I think that's another thing, right, of not just bringing in women, people of color, queer folks, right, to offer a different perspective, but but creating structures that support them, right? Do you have a comment section? How do you moderate it, right? How do you handle online harassment? How do you create a work environment where these folks can thrive, stay, get promoted, right, have, you know, true influence and contributions um, instead of just being sort of put in as like our diversity mouthpiece. Right. So I think that's change that like food media needs. Um, in the same way, right? Like the advertising industry, right? Another one that I work oh, yeah. on. Oh yeah, there's a there's a lot that's been happening. We've seen a lot over the past year, and I think COVID mm-hmm. was a 
big change in uh, it, COVID was extremely revealing in the sense that it just like ripped the mask off yep. of the industry. <laughs> and it was like, you could see all the colonialism, the white supremacy, the misogyny, um, yep. how, how workers were being treated, how women and, uh, you know, LGBTQ community were being treated within the industry and within the structure and everything. And, you know, now we're coming to the other end. And I mean, there's definitely going to be like a ripple effect, which we can see now in like some of the manufacturing and like, you know, we're, the things that happened last year, we're feeling this year, um, you know, with COVID now, like o- restaurants are opening and the demand is coming back, but the workers aren't coming back. And it's like, wow. yeah, well, you maybe you should pay them better or give them benefits. Like, you know, why would you expect someone to be thrown away at the beginning of the pandemic because you had to like tighten up your, you know, your operations. And now like, you know, you're like, oh, come on back now uh, with the same pay and, you know, none of the benefits and all of the abuse. Like, no. So there's there's definitely a lot of things changing. Um, I know restaurant reviewers, like a, a lot of them had to stop reviewing, but it makes me wonder mm-hmm. if like the, I, I do, I do believe that like reviewing is going to change um, after this, but just as the great recession kind of, you know, brought us the dude, uh, do you think that there is something that will emerge from COVID-19? Ooh. That's such a good question. I think what's interesting is like our most current recession, right? They called it a she session as we think about how this affected women and particularly women of color, right? In the service and retail industries, right? Like that's where we thought people lose jobs versus in the great recession. Like they called it a man session, a he session in looking at the kinds of jobs that were lost and then how that rippled right through these understandings of gender, how we move through the world. And so I think what this recession has done is made it so clear, right? That we need a worker revolution. Yes. And that it includes women at home, yeah. right? It includes everybody as we think about care work as real work. Um, you know, when we go back to the beginning of the industrial revolution, right? When all of a sudden, you know, work is hourly and for a wage and in a factory, yeah. that all of a sudden devalues all that work that's done in the home because it doesn't earn a wage, mm. right? Like we're dealing with those ramifications, you know, almost 200 years later yeah. of what it meant to not care about all that work and then to have it, you know, be feminized, you know, viewed as the work of women. And so I think I am, I do, I want, I want like all workers, right? Like higher education is falling apart. Right. Like there has to be a come to Jesus moment. We're seeing it in food. Right. The margins aren't there for these restaurants to continue operating the way that they were. Mm -hmm. Um, Thinking about, you know, the gross wage gaps we see by gender, but also huge income inequality as we look at the taxation structure in this country. So it is it's like a moment of like big change. And I think people might be angry enough. Right. Because of everything they've had to live under and give up and struggle through this past, you know, year and change that I hope we don't just want to slip back into that comfortable normal. Like this could be a moment where we actually get to slingshot forward into something that's bigger and better and more just for everybody. Thank you, Emily, for your scholarly yet approachable analysis. You've given us a lot to think about, and I hope that we can all move forward being a little bit more mindful about the media we consume. And for us working in media, I hope that we can be a little bit more ethical in the ways that we talk about food. 
You can find more of Emily's work on her website, emilycontois.com and at Emily Contois across all social media channels. You can also buy her book, Diners, Dudes, and Diets, wherever books are sold. You can follow Amuse Bouche on social media at Amuse Bouche Pod, and be sure to subscribe to the Amuse Bouche newsletter on Substack. Every week, you'll find even more food stories, recipes, and gardening updates now that it's summertime. It's a free newsletter at the moment, but I do accept tips, so consider helping a sister out by throwing her a few bucks a month. You can also support me by engaging with the show and following me at Kehlani Says on Instagram and Twitter. Amuse Bouche is hosted by yours truly, Kehlani Palmasano. At the moment, I'm working as a one-woman band, producing, editing, and bringing these amazing food stories to your ears. So if you like what you're listening to, be sure to subscribe. We've also got a lot of amazing guests in the coming weeks, so you're not going to want to miss it. The music at the beginning and the end of this podcast is by the Great North Sound Society, and the song is called South Street Strut, a little nod to my Philly folks out there. And if you'd like to be a guest on a future episode of Amuse Bouche, feel free to slide into my DMs or hit me up on Substack. 